0: Hello, and thanks for downloading the No Bullshit Leadership podcast. If you're interested in learning more about the life-changing power of great leadership, I have two exciting pieces of news. The first is that my new book, No Bullshit Change, is out now in hardback, Kindle, or on Audible. And the second is that I've launched a brand new online No Bullshit Leadership training program. It's designed for anybody who has ambitions they want to fulfill, places they want to go, and people they want to help thrive. If that's you, head over to my website, chris-hurst.com, to sign up for more information. That's chris-hurst.com. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, I'm Chris Hurst, and welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership podcast, brought to you by Intelligence Squared. Leadership is difficult but not complicated, and I want to help you cut through the bullshit and get to the heart of modern leadership, which, put simply, is the power to get stuff done and make stuff happen. In each episode, I'm joined by a different, inspirational leader who is doing just that, leading change in their worlds of business, sport, or politics. My guest today is an economist, writer, and broadcaster. Dr. Linda Yu is a Fellow of Economics at St. Edmund Hall, Oxford University an Associate Fellow at Chatham House, and an advisor to the UK Board of Trade. She was previously Chief Business Correspondent for BC News and Economics Editor at Bloomberg TV. Dr. Yu is also a widely published author, and her latest book is The Great Crashes, Lessons from Global Meltdowns and How to Prevent Them. Welcome to the podcast.
1: you very much for having me, Chris.
0: Not at all. So... Let's start with the most obvious question, I guess. What is a crash? How would you define it?
1: I would define it as economic misery. So that's unfortunately what a great crash is. So when economists say great, they actually mean the opposite. So this book, The Great Crashes, is about—it's <laughs> unfortunately about a century of financial folly. And so what you find is that markets crash regularly. So think about stock markets, think about housing markets, and sadly, there's often banking crises as well. So unfortunately, we've had so many financial crises. So I write about the 10 great crashes, the episodes over the last century, which have unfortunately just caused such dismal economic outcomes. Oh, so that's lasting for years and even results in the rescue of an entire country. So those are the great crashes that I focus on. And importantly, as the subtitle says, can we learn some lessons from global meltdowns and how to prevent them? Not to prevent a financial crisis, there's always going to be booms and busts, but to prevent a financial crisis from becoming a great crash.
0: Do you want to just kind of introduce us then to the three phases of a crash and explain why they are described as you do?
1: So the first phase is euphoria. The second phase is credibility. And this is where it's really terrific or talking about it on your podcast, because that is about credible leadership. And then the third phase is the aftermath. So the first phase, we've you might have heard or remembered the term irrational exuberance. That was coined in the 1990s with the dot-com bubble, where you just couldn't work out if e-commerce was the next big thing or if it was just a bubble. Now, it turns out it was the next big thing just 20 years later. But at the time, it was called irrational exuberance because there was a lot of FOMO going on, fear of missing out. So every crash result starts with a lack of a FOMO, and then a lack of, I would almost say, very challenging to be certain that something is fundamentally increased in value or a bubble. So... That is very common to all the crises that I write about, and indeed to, which I think be quite familiar for a lot of people. But the key thing is, by all means, do invest, act on your conviction, but just don't do it with too much debt. It's the debt. That triggers <laughs> a crisis when the inevitable busts follows from every boom. So, so in, uh,
0: in kind of layman's terms, it's the point where people start to borrow. They start to borrow money in order to invest in this market that they consider to be first of all they fear missing out, but also a market that can never drop. It, it's a sure become enough people start to believe it's a surefire winner that they borrow to invest in it, and that's when it really becomes a problem, is it?
1: Yeah, indeed, because they like to say there's three certainty, two certainties in life. I say there's three. So death and taxes. I would also say boom and busts. So there's going to be a bust. So the question is, can you afford the bust? So that leads to the second phase. So uh, after the bust, credibility of policymaking is absolutely crucial in terms of making sure that it's not a great crash. So the example, and this is an example of leadership that I write about in the book, is a lesson from the 1929 Great Crash, which is Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR. He managed to turn the corner on the Great Depression four years after the Great Crash because his leadership was credible. The third phase, just to finish off the framework, is that the aftermath depends on the first two phases. So if there's a lot of debt that requires deleveraging and worse, triggers a banking crisis, so you can think about the 2008 global financial crisis, that was a housing bust that triggered the worst banking crisis since the 1930s. So there's a lot of debt, a lot of repayment of debt, then it could trigger a banking crisis. And those are the worst economic impacts, right up there with sovereign debt defaults and rescues. So the third phase depends on having credible policies that can quickly address any crash and make sure that if there is deleveraging, so repayment of debt, and banks are affected, that the government provides income support for viable businesses, for people, so you don't end up causing misery for millions and millions. But these are, these are common to financial crises, and those are the lessons that we need to learn on, to learn from, as we look at each of the great crashes over the past century. Because it's inevitable, we will have another one, unfortunately. <music>
0: Well, the leadership thing I think is interesting because you talk about the three phases, and I suppose that the middle of those three credibility is, as you say, is most obviously linked to leadership. But that, the question that makes that occurs to me then is: it possible, or indeed, are there examples of where? of the crashes that never were it's because somebody, whether it be governments or whoever, intervened in a market, a housing bubble, a stock market, and headed off that crash. Are they possible to stop in advance, or do you have to just accept that they're going to happen and then deal with the consequences?
1: So there's a story I tell in the book, which is actually from 1955. The then Fed chairman said, Who wants to be the one who takes away the punch bowl when the party is just getting started? So traditionally, central banks do not want to deflate the bubble because they always, they can't tell if it's a bubble or not. So that changed after the 2008 subprime crisis in the U.S. because the consequences were so dire that since then, over the past decade, there has been a greater attempt to try and deflate a bubble, which is very hard. So that hasn't really been tested. But an example is actually from China, where it's having a huge property issue right now, property bust. And it's triggered by the government trying to control the amount of debt in the system. The government put out three red lines, which were intended to limit property developers' ability to become leveraged or indebted. And that's triggered the worst property crash that China has seen in its History as a modern economy. So, over the past 40 years. That being said, that is indeed what governments are doing now, which is called this is a mouthful macroprudential regulation, where they do things like lean against the wind. So, what they do, for instance, is if you think about how a bank lends, if your house price goes up, the bank that lends you money on your mortgage the value of that collateral, your house, has increased, which means, of course, you could remortgage at a better rate, but the bank lends on the basis of the value of the collateral on its balance sheet. So now it can lend more. So in a rising market, lending expands. It's a
0: self-fulfilling, it's a self-accelerating process.
1: Yeah, so credit expansion is is literally how the system works. The central banks will now come in and say, well, actually, house prices have risen but we're going to limit the loan to value ratio, the loan to value of your mortgage that they can lend against to try and reduce the amount of credit. And that's how they lean against the wind. So that's one tool. They've got other tools as well. But the whole intention is that central banks, regulators generally, are trying to prevent bubbles from bursting by trying to deflate them but i gave the example of china because it is very hard to do and you know there's i said this a moment ago there's always going to be booms and busts and may have nothing to do with with asset prices let me just be clear booms and busts follow the business cycle so there's always going to be a recession and expansion and so that has nothing to it can have nothing to do with asset prices so so in fact one of the statistics that i give in the book is if you look in the U.S. in the post-war period, basically, stock markets have fallen, have crashed, but doesn't lead to a recession, not all of them. But every recession comes with a stock market decline. So therefore, whenever you do have a recession, which does is a regular economic feature, then you will have an asset price fall, and it tends to be across asset classes. So it's not always the case that financial crises have to happen, but there is an argument for looking at when times are booming, even if there isn't a bubble, is the economy prepared for the next turn when it goes into recession? So that's, the, that's essentially the new model that central banks have taken on over the past decade. But I think what all, what all governments are now thinking about is can we hopefully learn the lessons from the past decade and just become much more, I would say, vigilant about the buildup of debt in the system and then to try and have more tools to try and at least try and prevent the credit growth. Not focusing so much on the asset class, whether that's housing or stocks, or whatever it is, but to try and focus on bank balance sheets because, as I said, banking crises result in the worst recessions because banks have to rebuild their balance sheets. They don't lend. It results in a credit crunch. So if you think we saw this after 2008, but this was a lesson from the 1930s. The Great Crash of 1929 was a huge disaster because it triggered the Great Depression of the 1930s, which lasted about a decade. And the U.S., tons of banks failed and The Great Depression, I mentioned the corner on the Great Depression, was turned in 1933 when FDR literally had just taken office. But he shut down the banks, and within his first few days in office, the banks were shut, and he was facing, facing at that point, a month-long bank run. That's why they closed down the banks.
0: I mean, they literally closed. They literally announced a bank holiday, didn't they? Yeah, no, They yes, shut down the yes.
1: banks and literally shut down the banks. So the lesson here, and this is why the 1929 Great Crash is a great place to start in my book, is that the lessons that I'm highlighting, you can actually find them in the 1929 Great Crash. It's just that the lessons haven't always been heeded.
0: What, what, what was it that he did?
1: So he did his famous Fireside Chat, which is a radio broadcast. So after the he declared a banking holiday, U.S. had actually shut their banks over the weekend. He told literally millions of Americans who are four years into this Great Depression after the Great Crash. And remember, there's been a month-long bank run. He goes on the radio and says, we have shut the banks. We're going to make sure that only the sound banks reopen. So it will be safer to put your money in the bank than under your mattress. So I'm sure they were relieved on Monday when there were queues of people, once again, outside of the banks. But they were queuing to put their money back into the bank rather than queuing to take the money out. So why was he so credible when his predecessor spent four years and couldn't turn the corner, Well, one is speed, shutting down all the banks of you, that's that's speed when you've just been president for like a day. And also he did inherit legislation, which he passed immediately. So the reason he could say that to Americans, it was safer to put it into the sound banks, was not only had they gone through the bank's balance sheets quickly, but they effectively guaranteed deposits. So we're used to deposit insurance now here in this country, up to £85,000. If the bank goes down, you get your money back. The U.S. didn't have deposit insurance like most countries didn't in the 1930s. So they put in deposit insurance. So backed by legislation, which was credible, quick resolution of the failed banks, and then a message that we're on top of it, Turned the corner on the Great Depression. Didn't end the Great Depression. The Great Depression went on for the rest of the 1930s because the economic damage that I'm describing was so extensive after four years of this. But he turned the corner because he was a highly credible leader who acted decisively and quickly and people believed him. The other example I'm going to fast forward to is the euro crisis, which is a very similar example, but this one I was there for. So the euro crisis was started in 2010, and it turned the corner in July of 2012. So this was because of European Central Bank, that's the central bank for the euro area, the countries that use the euro single currency. The president, the central bank head, is Mario Draghi. He gave his whatever-it-takes speech Here in London, actually, at Lancaster House on the eve of the London Olympics. So, like I said, I was there. And the euro crisis had been rumbling on since 2010. just seemed to be getting worse and worse. Not only was Greece rescued, Ireland was rescued, Portugal, and there was real concerns over Spain's banks, and eventually Spain's banks got rescued, Cyprus. So how did he turn the corner He literally gave a speech that said, all of you misunderstand, underestimate the political will behind the euro. So believe me when I say we will do whatever it takes so the euro will exist, because all of that had raised an existential question around the euro. He also, so there was financial markets at the time was looking for the central bank, the ECB to buy government debt. Because remember, government debt is being sold off. Of Nobody wanted government debt from the euro area and the peripheral countries. So they wanted to see a bond buying program. So Draghi had announced, he sent, it's called the OMT, Outright Monetary Transactions. Acronyms and names are not strengths in monetary economics. But what was fascinating was the OMT was never used. It was the credibility of his speech backed up by Euro area leaders like Germany's chancellor, Angela Merkel, and others who supported Draghi and said, yes, we politically stand behind the Euro. So I write about in the book, I was there. You could immediately see the stress in financial markets come down. We were measuring stress through looking at spreads and various things. It was a turning point. So I write in the book that Timothy Geithner, who was then the US Treasury Secretary, after the speech, went to Frankfurt and wanted to find out all about the speech. How did he do it? You know, what? What was the planning? And apparently Mario Draghi had made it up on the spot. He was giving his prepared speech and he just decided to ad-lib. Now, central bankers don't ad-lib, right? I mean, they have a prepared speech. It could move markets. It's (laughs) all very, it's all vetted. So apparently he ad-libbed it. He just said, whatever it takes. And so Geithner was like, there was no plan (laughs) And yet it worked. Why? Because it was viewed wow. as credible, even without actually using, as I say, the bond buying program, and the, the pro, there was no program behind it. It was this convincing the market, this was a credible statement, the euro was going to survive.
0: Essentially, it worked because they believed him. I mean, in really simple terms, the markets believed him, even though he didn't feel, he didn't provide any Tangible evidence for that. He just said, "This is what we believe and what we're going to do," and that worked. It's interesting the early two thousands because we had kind of three, didn't we? That, that certainly you and I have experienced in one shape or other. Dot com at the start at the start of the, the century, and then the the global financial crisis, and then the euro crisis. Do, you, do you, I mean? I remember the dot com bubble. And to my sort of uneducated or at least naive view, that seemed. I mean, I, I I looked at your book and I imagined these crises a bit like earthquakes, and I thought about the kind of Richter scales when you have little earthquakes and big earthquakes. They all affect somebody, but some so, some are a lot bigger than others. Is it naive to say that the the dot com bubble was in was orders of magnitude less serious than the than the global financial crisis that came eight years later? I mean, was it a relatively benign, if that's the right word, crash? Or was it just well handled and therefore it seems that way?
1: So the dot-com bubble was not nearly as bad as the 2008 global financial crisis. And it is a combination of the nature of the crisis and the policies that were used to cushion the aftermath. So 2008 was an extraordinary crisis because I write about in the book, one of the bank CEOs said to me, we wondered if we'd actually broken the system this time. So it was the first systemic banking crisis since the 1930s. So so thankfully, those are actually relatively rare. It resulted in a decade of misery for people. I mean, that's how severe the Great Recession, which followed it, was.
0: Do you think that's a, that then to sort of separate the two the the global the global financial crisis and the dot com bubble dot com was primarily an asset bubble is that essentially why it was ultimately less potentially cataclysmic than the global financial crisis which was a banking crisis so
1: it's one of the differences so there wasn't as much debt and that's why it didn't trigger a banking crisis So you can have a banking crisis that's also not systemic. In other words, it doesn't need to be as bad as 2008. But anytime you have a banking crisis, you have a credit crunch, and therefore you just have a period of economic misery. So most of the stock market crashes don't trigger banking crises happily, luckily, fortunately, except... When they do. <laughs> and so so that, that is something that we've seen. So it's never there's never a clean taxonomy, but making sure there's not too much debt. So in, in investment terms, that means you invest on margin, you borrow money to invest. You saw that in 1929. You didn't really see that and in the dot-com era. That was mostly venture capital. So I think so. Telling these stories of crashes, one of the fascinating things is Mark Twain is right. They all have very different causes and features and traits. But they all share this rough three phases, which is where you can start to learn what to do and what not to do. And one of the things what not to do, which came out after the dot-com crash, is the central bank cut interest rates, the Fed lowered the cost of borrowing because they were trying to prevent a recession. But the recession ended in November 2001. Interest rates then stayed low for another three years or so. They didn't actually start to increase interest rates until several years later. And that low interest rate helped fuel the housing bubble, which led to the 2008 housing bubble and crash, because people were not going to put their money into stocks. The NASDAQ didn't recover until 2015. So people were not putting their money into stocks. They were putting them into housing. So the policies from the last crash led to the next crash. And that's also a pretty common trait. So
0: it's like whack-a-mole yeah.
1: Yeah, well this is why you have to learn I think the lessons so, fairly carefully because it's there are things to do and things not to do <laughs> even if they're overall and in the dot com case it didn't result in economic disaster but there're still lessons from that.
0: So, so we talked about that if you like the certainly in the modern age the mother of all crashes the one we've all everybody's heard of 1929 we've talked about F, what FDR did talked then about what mario draghi did in the euro crisis the in 2008 how would you score let's say the people responsible for trying to fix it central banks governments how would you say they did I know this, this continues to this day, doesn't it, to be an awful lot of controversy about bailing out bankers, them still taking their bonuses while ordinary people still suffer. But nevertheless, the system was saved. Do you think on balance, they did a good job? So
1: I think the probably one of the things to... And I actually write about this in my previous book, The Great Economist, which is one of the main reasons why the 1930s was the Great Depression was that... It was a depression and there was deflation. So when you repay debt, prices fall. And you can see that in Japan, where they have struggled until very recently with three decades of deflation with price falls. I mean, when prices fall, people don't buy things. Prices will be cheaper in the future. There's no incentive to produce, to invest, to innovate. So you can't get into, it's called the debt deflation cycle, which is a lesson from the 1930s. So Ben Bernanke, who was the chairman of the US Fed, the central bank, before he did that role, he actually was an academic. He was an economics professor. And his subject of study was the debt deflation theory from the 1930s. He's a scholar of the Great Depression. So I write about in my previous book as well that because he was so aware of the lessons from the 1930s that we didn't have deflation after 2008, which was a very similar systemic banking crash, which could have broken the system. We talked about the 1930s. They literally broke the system and rebuilt it. and We were facing that in 2008. And so that is actually a great example of leadership, where learning the lessons from history prevented what could have been a worse outcome. And I think it's that counterfactual, which is always very hard for leaders in crises, Those who do well, like I talked about Mario Draghi in the euro crisis a few years after that, those who do well and prevented something, it's hard to go, could have been worse, I've prevented that. So, so, I mean, like, what do you, like, like, if it wasn't for me. Yeah. So it is very challenging. But, but I think so. I think so. I think for me, in all the crises that I write about, a lot of people played pivotal roles. And I think something like 2008. It's still too soon to say. There's, I think, there's a reason why books like mine are still writing about the story. There's a saying which is nothing is certain, especially history. You know, you're still looking at it and yes, trying yes, yes, to work absolutely. out who played which yeah. role and what. And so to me, that's been um, one of the fascinating things about writing this book, because economics can be viewed as rather dry, but history is full of people making choices and decisions. And I very much enjoy history, and I hope others do too, because you can make your own assessment about the boldness of Draghi, or actually the very quiet. I don't think Bernanke ever claimed that he did what I just said he did. I mean, I think so. There's there's quite a lot of, I would say, reexamination still going on. And there's still consequences, even from 2008, people have gone through it. There's still a lot of, it's still very raw for a lot of people. So to me, that's why history is so important, and which is why we can say, and just to give you an example of revisiting what caused history, even the cause of the Great Depression is still being debated. So like, economists are still saying what actually caused the Great Depression was it bad monetary policy? the central bank made the wrong call? was it the government was it so you know this to me, without getting into all the technical details, my book just tells you the stories about these what people did and then and then the data did it was it a recession? did people lose their homes and Unfortunately, there was a lot of economic misery on the back of a lot of these things so I think so. To me, my book and, and history books, I think they tell stories of people. And I hope we can finish this podcast with some of the stories of what I find as both inspirational and foolhardy leadership.
0: <laughs> well, well, I mean, the obvious question then is, what is the story that's, that <laughs> most stands out for you?
1: So probably the chapter that I thoroughly enjoyed. It's like when you're an author, you cannot pick your favorite chapter, but I really enjoyed the dot-com one. And it's just because it was just such a story of, and I love aspiration. I love entrepreneurs, but it's a story of that having gone wrong. (laughs) So the dot-com era, you just had, everybody wanted to be a dot-com millionaire. So, (laughs) I mean, so what was a dot-com, an internet company that was selling things? Just imagine this, Chris, you can buy something on the internet without having to go to a physical store. So this is the 1990s. I mean, it was really exciting. And you can just see that people wanted to be part of that, drive what they saw as the future. And and the dot-com boom was on the back of entrepreneurs who who are doing that. So The reason there were so many dot-com millionaires was because a lot of money was going into the sector. So one of the stories I tell is Garden.com. So the guys who ran Garden.com, it's not unusual to to jump into a business without having been in that business before if you have similar skills. However, apparently the guys who founded Garden.com didn't even really like gardening as a hobby. So you just had this sort of piling in. And then another example, the most famous failure of that era is pets.com. So they had this idea where you could buy, I mean, you could sell pet supplies. They spent millions on a sock puppet who was featured in the Thanksgiving, Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade was in the Super Bowl halftime show. So you might be tuning in to watch Rihanna, but you could have seen a sock puppet in the late 1990s getting that covetous slot. So they were spending, just spending just like that. And then other, others were jumping in as well. They were creating web pages with 3D imagery at a time when most households didn't have broadband. So you might remember the dial-up modem to get on the internet. So they were spending millions on websites that people couldn't actually access. And so unsurprisingly, this they were probably ahead of their time because e-commerce now, with broadband, <laughs> means that you do have the ability to buy things. We buy things online all the time now. So they probably too early. But with all the money they had available, they also spent too much. and. And that, exactly, that's exactly, that was irrational exuberance because you weren't sure it was a fundamental change, which it was, they were just too early. So then the whole sector, as I said earlier, imploded in 18 months and just, it was IPO'd, you're worth tons of money and then you are worth nothing. And so the big lesson from this, of course, is all those things that I described But one of the main lessons, and this is one that I think is important to mention, is that guess who was the 50% owner of Pets.com? It was Jeff Bezos. So he wanted Amazon. Yeah. He wanted to diversify Amazon away from books into selling everything on the internet, which of course, now if you look at Amazon, Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, they sell you pretty much everything. What a crazy idea. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Never going to work. But for Pets.com, unlike Pets.com, kept a really close eye on the bottom line. So all that spending that I'm describing, Amazon didn't do. He was very focused on the bottom line, and he actually cut his marketing spend at that time. And Amazon focused on on its core strategy. Amazon came out of the dot-com bust as one of the huge winners. Clearly, it's one of the most valuable companies in the world right now. So even though The whole sector went went bankrupt, pretty much. And then the Nasdaq spent a decade and a half until it recovered. The winners from busts and recessions, the entrepreneurs who really focus on their core strategy and delivering, cannot just survive, but thrive after a bust. And he's one of many examples I write about in the book where you can actually come through. If you can do well in the downturn, you'll do really well. In the upturn, and so to me, the dot com episode is a great example of what to do, what not to do, and and leadership.
0: But my last question was going to be: Are we just that? Are we right now in the middle of a crash, but we haven't quite realized it yet? Because it's not just the it's not just the tech companies. Is there, there was Silicon Valley Bank, there was Credit Suisse. I mean, are we in a are we in a slow motion? crisis?
1: Uh, Yes. So the end of my book, I write about where we are currently. And there's a number of, I would say there's a number of crises that are happening. And in this part of the cycle, it shouldn't be surprising. In other words, we are facing recessionary conditions. Interest rates are very high. And in these circumstances, inflation's high. In these circumstances, this is often in this part of the cycle, recessions come with asset market falls. So we mentioned the tech crash and Silicon Valley Bank, the three banks that failed this year, um, all considered to be mid-sized regional banks. They are three of the five biggest bank failures in U.S. history. The only two, which are the same size, the biggest one is Washington Mutual in 2008, And the fifth biggest crash that's smaller than the three banks that failed this year was Continental, Illinois, which was during the savings and loan crisis of the 1980s, which I write about in the book. So the U.S. has a regional banking crisis, which if you look at the example of the SNL crisis, so the U.S. has a regional banking crisis. But if you look at what happened in the savings and loan crisis of the 1980s, never discount. Savings and loans are like building societies. If enough of them go, it can be systemic. They right now also have faced a commercial real estate crash because people are not going to the office as much. So property values have fallen by half in some cities like New York and Boston. We have a cost of living crisis that I write about in the book. Our efforts to control inflation going to tip us into recession. And if you're in recession again, you would expect asset markets to also fall potentially crash. So right now, we are at a period where a number of things could trigger a financial crisis, emerging markets as well. To give you one statistic, 60% of emerging markets in developing countries are at risk of debt distress, according to the International Monetary Fund that monitors these things. In 2008, that percentage was 20%. So because of the pandemic, and the Russia-Ukraine war, there are more emerging markets which could possibly need a rescue. China's banking crisis that I described could be an actual crisis. (laughs) hard to say in China, lots of information we may not know. They own the banks. But the property collapse suggests banks' balance sheets are stressed. So globally, we could also be looking at anything which could trigger a financial crisis, potentially a great crash. So all of those things are happening right now, which is why this period is sometimes described as a poly crisis. There's just a, lots and lots of things. So I really hope that we have and can learn the lessons from history to prevent these crises from becoming great
0: crashes. Well, it, that's a great place to end. So your book, The Great Crashes, it's we should all, particularly people, particularly people who work at the top of banks and the top of our government should rush out and read it. I'm sure they are. <laughs> so thank you so much for your time, Linda. That was absolutely fascinating. Oh,
1: thank you, Chris. Absolute pleasure. <laughs>